Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Agatha Christie's detective stories have been enjoyed by millions through books, radio, magazines, movies, and television. One of my favorite Agatha Christie mysteries is The Secret Adversary. Today's story, beginning here at 1001 Stories for the Road. We also have a few Agatha Christie mysteries in short story form, available over at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales with more scheduled in the future for your enjoyment. The Secret Adversary is the second published detective fiction novel by British writer Agatha Christie, first published in January 1922 in the United Kingdom by The Bodley Head, and in the United States by Dodd Mead & Company later that same year. The book introduces the characters of Tommy and Tuppence, who feature in three other Christie novels and one collection of short stories. The five Tommy and Tuppence books span Agatha Christie's writing career, in this story, The Secret Adversary, the Great War, World War I, is over, and jobs are scarce. Childhood friends Tommy Beresford, a twice-wounded war vet, and Prudence Tuppence Cowley, his friends since childhood, both in their young 20s, meet again and agree to start their own business as the young adventurers, meeting foes and allies, one ally being an American millionaire in search of his cousin. This story is a great adventure, with many twists and turns, and a page-turner for everyone who enjoys good stories. We hope you enjoy it and share our podcast version with your friends. And now, our story. And now, The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie. Prologue. It was 2 p.m. on the afternoon of May 7, 1915. The Lusitania had been struck by two torpedoes in succession and was sinking rapidly, while the boats were being launched with all possible speed. The women and children were being lined up, awaiting their turn. Some still clung desperately to husbands and fathers. Others clutched their children closely to their breasts. One girl stood alone, slightly apart from the rest. She was quite young, not more than eighteen. She did not seem afraid, and her grave, steadfast eyes looked straight ahead. "'I beg your pardon?' A man's voice beside her made her start and turn. She had noticed the speaker more than once amongst the first-class passengers." There had been a hint of mystery about him, which had appealed to her imagination. He spoke to no one. If anyone spoke to him, he was quick to rebuff the overture. 
Also, he had a nervous way of looking over his shoulder with a swift, suspicious glance. She noticed now that he was greatly agitated. There were beads of perspiration on his brow. He was evidently in a state of overmastering fear. And yet, he did not strike her as the kind of man who would be afraid to meet death. Yes? Her grave eyes met his inquiringly. He stood looking at her with a kind of desperate irresolution. It must be, he muttered to himself. Yes, it is the only way. Then aloud he said abruptly, You are an American? Yes. A patriotic one? The girl flushed. I think you have no right to ask such a thing. Of course I am. Don't be offended. You wouldn't be if you knew how much there was at stake. But I've got to trust someone, and it must be a woman. Why? Because of women and children first. He looked round and lowered his voice. I'm carrying papers, vitally important papers. They may make all the difference to the Allies in the war. Do you understand? These papers have got to be saved. They've more chance with you than with me. Will you take them? The girl held out her hand. Wait, I must warn you. There may be a risk if I've been followed. I don't think I have, but one never knows. If so, you will be in danger. Have you the nerve to go through with it? The girl smiled. I'll go through with it all right, and I'm real proud to be chosen. What am I to do with them afterwards? Watch the newspapers. I'll advertise it in the personal column of the Times, beginning Shipmate. At the end of three days, if there's nothing, well, you know I'm down and out. Then take the packet to the American Embassy and deliver it into the Ambassador's own hands. Is that clear? Yes, quite clear. Then be ready. I'm going to say goodbye. He took her hand in his. Goodbye. Good luck to you, he said in a louder tone. Her hand closed on the oilskin packet that had lain in his palm. The Lusitania settled with a more decided list to starboard. In answer to a quick command, the girl went forward to take her place in the lifeboat. Chapter 1 The Young Adventurers Limited. "'Tommy, old thing! Tuppence, old bean!' The two young people greeted each other affectionately and momentarily blocked the Dover Street tube exit in doing so. The adjective old was misleading. Their united ages would certainly not have totaled forty-five. "'Not seen you for simply centuries,' continued the young man. "'Where are you off to? Come and chew a bun with me. We're getting a bit unpopular here, blocking the gangway, as it were. Let's get out of it.' The girl assenting, they started walking down Dover Street towards Piccadilly. "'Now then,' said Tommy, "'where shall we go?' The very faint anxiety which underlay his tone did not escape the astute ears of Miss Prudence Cowley, known to her intimate friends for some mysterious reason as Duppence. She pounced at once. "'Tommy, you're stony!' "'Not a bit of it,' declared Tommy, unconvincingly. "'Rolling in cash!' "'You always were a shocking liar!' "'said Tuppence severely, "'though you did once persuade Sister Greenbank "'that the doctor had ordered you beer as a tonic, "'but forgotten to write it on the chart. "'Do you remember?' "'Tommy chuckled. "'I should think I did. "'Wasn't the old cat in a rage when she found out? "'Not that she was a bad sort, really. "'Old Mother Greenbank. "'Good old hospital. "'Demobbed, like everything else, I suppose.' "'Tuppence sighed. "'Yes. "'You too?' "'Tommy nodded. 
two months ago. Gratuity? hinted Tuppence. Spent. Oh, Tommy! I know what you're thinking. No, not in riotous dissipation. No such luck. The cost of living, ordinary plain, or garden living nowadays is, I assure you, if you do not know. My dear child, interrupted Tuppence, there is nothing I do not know about the cost of living. Here we are at Lyons, and we will each of us pay for our own. That's it. And Tuppence led the way upstairs. The place was full, and they wandered about looking for a table, catching odds and ends of conversation as they did so. And do you know, she sat down and cried when I told her she couldn't have the flat after all. It was simply a bargain, my dear, just like the one Mabel Lewis brought from Paris. Funny scraps one does over here, murmured Tommy. I passed two Johnnies in the street today talking about someone called Jane Finn. Did you ever hear such a name? But at that moment two elderly ladies rose and collected parcels, and Tuppence deftly ensconced herself in one of the vacant seats. Tommy ordered tea and buns. Tuppence ordered tea and buttered toast. And mind the tea comes in separate teapots, she added severely. Tommy sat down opposite her. His bared head revealed a shock of exquisitely slicked-back red hair. His face was pleasantly ugly, nondescript, yet unmistakably the face of a gentleman and a sportsman. His brown suit was well cut, but perilously near the end of its tether. They were an essentially modern-looking couple as they sat there. Tuppence had no claim to beauty, but there was character and charm in the elfin lines of her little face, with its determined chin and large, wide-apart gray eyes that looked mistily out from under straight, black brows. She wore a small, bright green toque over her black-bobbed hair, and her extremely short and rather shabby skirt revealed a pair of uncommonly dainty ankles. Her appearance presented a valiant attempt at smartness. The tea came at last, and Tuppence, rousing herself from a fit of meditation, poured it out. "'Now, then,' said Tommy, taking a large bite of bun, "'let's get up to date. Remember, I haven't seen you since that time in hospital in 1916.' "'Very well.' Tuppence helped herself liberally to buttered toast." Abridged Biography of Miss Prudence Cowley, Fifth Daughter of Archdeacon Cowley of Little Missendale, Suffolk. Miss Cowley left the delights, and drudgeries, of her home life early in the war and came up to London, where she entered an officer's hospital. First month, washed up 648 plates every day. Second month, promoted to drying aforesaid plates. Third month, promoted to peeling potatoes. Fourth month, promoted to cutting bread and butter. Fifth month, promoted one floor up to duties of ward-maid with mop and pail. Sixth month, promoted to waiting at table. Seventh month, pleasing appearance and nice manners so striking that I am promoted to waiting on the sisters. Eighth month, slight check in career. Sister Bond ate Sister Westhaven's egg. Grand row. Ward-maid, me, clearly to blame. Inattention in such important matters cannot be too highly censured. Back to mop and pail. How are the mighty fallen? Ninth month, promoted to sweeping out wards, where I found a friend of my childhood in Lieutenant Thomas Beresford. Bow, Tommy, whom I had not seen for five long years. The meeting was affecting. Tenth month, reproved by matron for visiting the pictures in company with one of the patients, namely, the aforementioned Lieutenant Thomas Beresford. Eleventh and twelfth months, parlor-maid duties resumed with entire success. At the end of the year, left hospital in a blaze of glory. 
After that, the talented Miss Cowley drove successively a trade delivery van, a motor lorry, and a general. The last was the pleasantest. He was quite a young general. "'And what blighter was that?' inquired Tommy. "'Perfectly sickening the way those brass hats drove from the war office to the Savoy, and from the Savoy to the war office.' "'I've forgotten his name now,' confessed Tuppence. "'To resume, that was in a way the apex of my career. "'I next entered a government office. "'We had several very enjoyable tea parties. "'I had intended to become a land girl, a postwoman, "'and a bus conductress by way of rounding off my career. "'But the armistice intervened. "'I clung to the office with the true limpid touch for many long months, "'but alas, I was combed out at last. "'Since then I've been looking for a job.' "'Now, then, your turn, Tommy.' "'There's not so much promotion in mine,' said Tommy regretfully, "'and a great deal less variety. "'I went out to France again, as you know. "'Then they sent me to Mesopotamia, "'and I got wounded for the second time "'and went into hospital out there. "'Then I got stuck in Egypt till the armistice happened, "'kicked my heels there some time longer, "'and, as I told you, finally got demobbed. "'And for ten long, weary months, I've been job-hunting. There aren't any jobs, and if there were, they wouldn't give them to me. What good am I? What do I know about business? Nothing. Tuppence nodded gloomily. What about the colonies? She suggested. Tommy shook his head. I shouldn't like the colonies, and I'm perfectly certain they wouldn't like me. Rich relations? Again Tommy shook his head. "'Oh, Tommy, not even a great-aunt?' "'I've got an old uncle who's more or less rolling, but he's no good.' "'Why not?' "'Wanted to adopt me once. I refused.' "'I think I remember hearing about it,' said Tuppence slowly. "'You refused because of your mother.' Tommy flushed. "'Yes, it would have been a bit rough on the mater. "'As you know, I was all she had.' Old boy hated her, wanted to get me away from her. Just a bit of spite. Your mother's dead, isn't she? said Tuppence gently. Tommy nodded. Tuppence's large gray eyes looked misty. You're a good sort, Tommy. I always knew it. Rat, said Tommy hastily. Well, that's my position. I'm just about desperate. So am I. I've hung out as long as I could. I've touted round. I've answered advertisements. I've tried every mortal blessed thing. I've screwed and saved and pinched, but it's no good. I shall have to go home. Don't you want to? Of course I don't want to. What's the good of being sentimental? Father's a dear. I'm awfully fond of him. But you've no idea how I worry him. He has that delightful early Victorian view that short skirts and smoking are immoral. You can imagine what a thorn in the flesh I am to him. He just heaved a sigh of relief when the war took me off. You see, there are seven of us at home. It's awful there. All housework and mother's meetings. I've always been the changeling. I don't want to go back. But, oh, Tommy, what else is there to do? Tommy shook his head sadly. There was a silence, and then Tuppence burst out. Money, money, money. I think about money morning, noon, and night. I dare say it's mercenary of me, but there it is. 
Same here, agreed Tommy with feeling. I've thought over every imaginable way of getting it, too, continued Tuppence. There are only three. To be left it, to marry it, or to make it. First is ruled out. I haven't got any rich elderly relatives. Any relatives I have are in homes for decayed gentlewomen. I always help old ladies over crossings and pick up parcels for old gentlemen in case they should turn out to be eccentric millionaires. But not one of them has ever asked me my name and quite a lot never said thank you. There was a pause. Of course, resumed Tuppence, marriage is my best chance. I made up my mind to marry money when I was quite young. Any thinking girl would. I'm not sentimental, you know. She paused. Come now, you can't say I'm sentimental, she added sharply. Certainly not, agreed Tommy hastily. No one would ever think of sentiment in connection with you. That's not very polite, replied Tuppence. But I dare say you mean it all right. Well, there it is. I'm ready and willing. But I never meet any rich men. All the boys I know are about as hard up as I am. What about the general? inquired Tommy. I fancy he keeps a bicycle shop in time of peace, explained Tuppence. No, there it is. Now you could marry a rich girl. I'm like you. I don't know any. That doesn't matter. You can always get to know one. Now, if I see a man in a fur coat come out of the Ritz, I can't rush up to him and say, Look here, you're rich. I'd like to know you. Do you suggest that I should do that to a similarly garbed female? Don't be silly. You tread on her foot or pick up her handkerchief or something like that. If she thinks you want to know her, she's flattered and will manage it for you somehow. You overrate my manly charms, murmured Tommy. On the other hand, proceeded Tuppence, my millionaire would probably run for his life. No, marriage is fraught with difficulties. Remains to make money. We've tried that and failed, Tommy reminded her. We've tried all the orthodox ways, yes, but suppose we try the unorthodox. Tommy, let's be adventurers. Certainly, replied Tommy cheerfully. How do we begin that? That's the difficulty. If we could make ourselves known, people might hire us to commit crimes for them. Delightful, commented Tommy, especially coming from a clergyman's daughter. The moral guilt, Tuppence pointed out, would be theirs, not mine. You must admit that there's a difference between stealing a diamond necklace for yourself and being hired to steal it. There wouldn't be the least difference if you were caught. Perhaps not, but I shouldn't be caught. I'm too clever. Modesty always was your besetting sin, remarked Tommy. Don't rag. Look here, Tommy. Shall we really? Shall we form a business partnership? Form a company for the stealing of diamond necklaces? That was just an illustration. Let's have, let's have a, what do you call it in bookkeeping? I don't know. I never did any. I have, but I always get mixed up and used to put credit entries on the debit side and vice versa. So they fired me out. Oh, I know. A joint venture. It struck me as such a romantic phrase to come across in the middle of musty old figures. It's got an Elizabethan flavor about it. Makes one think of galleons and doubloons. 
a joint venture. Trading under the name of Young Adventures Limited. Is that your idea, Tuppence? It's all very well to laugh, but I feel there might be something in it. And how do you propose to get in touch with your would-be employers? Advertisement, replied Tuppence promptly. Have you got a bit of paper and a pencil? Men usually seem to have. Just like we have hairpins and powder puffs. Tommy handed over a rather shabby green notebook, and Tuppence began writing busily. Shall we begin? Young officer, twice wounded in the war. No. Uh, very well. But I can assure you that that sort of thing might touch the heart of an elderly spinster, and she might adopt you, and then there would be no need for you to be a young adventurer at all. I don't want to be adopted. Oh, I forgot you had a prejudice against that. I was only ragging you. The papers are full up to the brim with that type of thing. Now listen, how's this? Two young adventurers for hire, willing to do anything, go anywhere. Pay must be good. We might as well make that clear from the start. Then we might add, no reasonable offer refused. Like flats and furniture. I should think any offer we get in answer to that would be a pretty unreasonable one. Tommy, you're a genius. That's ever so much more chic. No unreasonable offer refused, if pay is good. How's that? I shouldn't mention pay again. It looks rather eager. It couldn't look as eager as I feel. But perhaps you're right. Now I'll read it straight through. Two young adventurers for hire, willing to do anything, go anywhere. Pay must be good. No unreasonable offer refused. How would that strike you if you read it? Yeah, it would strike me as either being a hoax or else written by a lunatic. It's not half so insane as a thing I read this morning beginning Petunia and signed Best Boy. She tore out the leaf and handed it to Tommy. There you are. Times, I think. Reply to box so-and-so. I expect it will be about five shillings. Here's half a crown for my share. Tommy was holding the paper thoughtfully. His face burned a deeper red. Shall we really try it? He said at last. Shall we, Tuppence? Just for the fun of the thing. Tommy, you're a sport. I knew you would be. Let's drink to success. She poured some cold dregs of tea into the two cups. Here's to our joint venture. And may it prosper. To the young adventurers limited, responded Tommy. They put down the cups and laughed rather uncertainly. Tuppence rose. I must return to my palatial suite at the hostel. Perhaps it is time I strolled around to the Ritz, agreed Tommy with a grin. Where shall we meet, and when? Twelve o'clock tomorrow, Piccadilly Tube Station. Will that suit you? My time is my own, replied Mr. Beresford, magnificently. So long, then. Goodbye, old thing. The two young people went off in opposite directions. Tuppence's hostel was situated in what was charitably called Southern Belgravia. For reasons of economy, she did not take a bus. She was halfway across St. James Park when a man's voice behind her made her start. "'Excuse me,' it said, "'but may I speak to you for a moment?' We'll return with Chapter 2 of The Secret Adversary right after these sponsor messages. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, Chapter 2, Mr. Whittington's Offer. Tuppence turned sharply, but the words hovering on the tip of her tongue remained unspoken, for the man's appearance and manner did not bear out her first and most natural assumption. She hesitated. As if he had read her thoughts, the man said quickly, "'I can assure you, I mean no disrespect.' Tuppence believed him. Although she disliked and distrusted him instinctively, she was inclined to acquit him of the particular motive which she had at first attributed to him. She looked him up and down. He was a big man, clean-shaven, with a heavy jowl. His eyes were small and cunning, and shifted their glance under her direct gaze. "'Well, what is it?' she asked. The man smiled. "'I happened to overhear part of your conversation with the young gentleman in Lyons. "'Well, what of it?' "'Nothing.' "'except that I think I may be of some use to you.' "'Another inference forced itself into Tuppence's mind. "'You followed me here?' "'Yes, I took that liberty. "'And in what way do you think you could be of use to me?' "'The man took a card from his pocket and handed it to her with a bow. "'Tuppence took it and scrutinized it carefully. "'It bore the inscription, "'Mr. Edward Whittington. "'Below the name were the words, "'Estonia Glassware Company.' "'and the address of a city office. "'Mr. Whittington spoke again. "'If you will call upon me tomorrow morning at eleven o'clock, "'I will lay the details of my proposition before you.' "'At eleven o'clock?' said Tuppence doubtfully. "'At eleven o'clock.' "'Tuppence made up her mind. "'Very well. I'll be there.' "'Thank you. Good evening.' "'He raised his hat with a flourish and walked away. "'Tuppence remained for some minutes, gazing after him. Then she gave a curious movement of her shoulders, rather as a terrier shakes himself. "'The adventures have begun,' she murmured to herself. "'What does he want me to do, I wonder? There's something about you, Mr. Whittington, that I don't like at all. But on the other hand, I'm not the least bit afraid of you. As I've said before, and shall doubtless say again, little Tuppence can look after herself, thank you.' And with a short, sharp nod of her head, she walked briskly forward. As a result of further meditations, however, she turned aside from the direct route and entered a post office. There she pondered for some moments, a telegraph form in her hand. The thought of a possible five shillings spent unnecessarily spurred her to action, and she decided to risk the waste of ninepence. Disdaining the spiky pen and thick black treacle which a beneficent government had provided, Tuppence drew out Tommy's pencil which she had retained and wrote rapidly, "'Don't put in advertisement. We'll explain tomorrow.' She addressed it to Tommy at his club, from which in one short month he would have to resign, unless a kindly fortune permitted him to renew his subscription. "'It may catch him,' she murmured. "'Anyway, it's worth trying.' After handing it over the counter, she set out briskly for home, stopping at a baker's to buy three pennyworth of new buns. Later, in her tiny cubicle at the top of the house, she munched buns and reflected on the future." What was the Estonia Glassware Company, and what earthly need could it have for her services? 
A pleasurable thrill of excitement made Tuppence tingle. At any rate, the country vicarage had retreated into the background again. The morrow held possibilities. It was a long time before Tuppence went to sleep that night, and when at length she did, she dreamed that Mr. Whittington had set her to washing up a pile of Estonia glassware, which bore the unaccountable resemblance to hospital plates. It wanted some five minutes to eleven when Tuppence reached the block of buildings in which the offices of the Estonia Glassware Company were situated. To arrive before the time would look over-eager, so Tuppence decided to walk to the end of the street and back again. She did so. On the stroke of eleven, she plunged into the recesses of the building. The Estonia Glassware Company was on the top floor. There was a lift, but Tuppence chose to walk up. Slightly out of breath, she came to a halt outside the ground glass door with a legend painted across it, Estonia Glassware Company. Tuppence knocked. In response to a voice from within, she turned the handle and walked into a small, rather dirty, outer office. A middle-aged clerk got down from a high stool at a desk near the window and came towards her inquiringly. "'I have an appointment with Mr. Whittington,' said Tuppence. "'Will you come this way, please?' He crossed to a partition door with private on it, knocked, then opened the door, and stood aside to let her pass in. Mr. Whittington was seated behind a large desk covered with papers. Tuppence felt her previous judgment confirmed. There was something wrong about Mr. Whittington. The combination of his sleek prosperity and his shifty eye was not attractive. He looked up and nodded. "'So you've turned up, all right. That's good. Sit down, will you?' Tuppence sat down on the chair facing him. She looked particularly small and demure this morning. She sat there meekly with downcast eyes whilst Mr. Whittington sorted and rustled amongst his papers. Finally he pushed them away and leaned over the desk. "'Now, my dear young lady, let us come to business.' His large face broadened into a smile. "'You want work? Well, I have work to offer you. What should you say now to a hundred pounds down and all expenses paid?' Mr. Whittington leaned back in his chair and thrust his thumbs into the armholes of his waistcoat. Tuppence eyed him warily. "'And the nature of the work?' she demanded. "'Nominal. Purely nominal. A pleasant trip, that's all.' "'Where to?' Mr. Whittington smiled again. "'Paris.' "'Oh,' said Tuppence thoughtfully. To herself she said, "'Of course.' If father heard that, he would have a fit. But somehow I don't see Mr. Whittington in the role of a gay deceiver. Yes, continued Whittington. What could be more delightful? To put the clock back a few years, a very few, I am sure, and re-enter one of those charming pensionnats de jeunes filles with which Paris abounds. Tuppence interrupted him. A pensionnat? Exactly. Madame Columbier's in the Avenue de Neuilly. Tuppence knew the name well. Nothing could have been more select. She had had several American friends there. She was more than ever puzzled. Do you want me to go to Madame Colombier's? For how long? That depends. Possibly three months. And that is all? There are no other conditions? None whatever. You would, of course, go in the character of my ward, and you would hold no communication with your friends... I should have to request absolute secrecy for the time being. By the way, you are English, are you not? Yes, yet you speak with a slight American accent. My great pal in hospital was a little American girl. 
"'I dare say I picked it up from her. "'I can soon get out of it again. "'On the contrary, "'it might be simpler for you to pass as an American. "'Details about your past life in England "'might be more difficult to sustain. "'Yes, I think that would be decidedly better. "'Then?' "'One moment, Mr. Whittington. "'You seem to be taking my consent for granted.' "'Whittington looked surprised. "'Surely you're not thinking of refusing.' "'I can assure you that Madame Colombier's is a most high-class and orthodox establishment, "'and the terms are most liberal.' "'Exactly,' said Tuppence. "'That's just it. "'The terms are almost too liberal, Mr. Whittington. "'I cannot see any way in which I can be worth that amount of money to you.' "'No?' said Whittington softly. "'Well, I'll tell you. "'I could doubtless obtain someone else for very much less.' "'What I'm willing to pay for is a young lady "'with sufficient intelligence and presence of mind "'to sustain her part well, "'and also one who will have sufficient discretion "'not to ask too many questions.' Tuppen smiled a little. "'She felt that Whittington had scored. "'There's another thing. "'So far there's been no mention of Mr. Beresford. "'Where does he come in?' "'Mr. Beresford?' "'My partner,' said Tuppen with dignity. "'You saw us together yesterday.' "'Ah, yes.' "'but I'm afraid we also, but I'm afraid we shan't require his services. "'Then it's off,' Tuppence rose. "'It's both or neither. "'Sorry, but that's how it is. "'Good morning, Mr. Whittington.' "'Wait a minute. "'Let us see if something can't be managed. "'Sit down again, Miss—' "'He paused interrogatively. "'Tuppence's conscience gave her a passing twinge "'as she remembered the archdeacon. "'She seized hurriedly on the first name that came into her head. "'Jane Finn!' she said hastily, and then paused open-mouthed at the effect of those two simple words. All the geniality had faded out of Whittington's face. It was purple with rage, and the veins stood out on the forehead. And behind it all there lurked a sort of incredulous dismay. He leaned forward and hissed savagely. "'So that's your little game, is it?' Tuppence, though utterly taken aback, nevertheless kept her head. She had not the faintest comprehension of his meaning, but she was naturally quick-witted and felt it imperative to keep her end up, as she phrased it. Whittington went on. "'Been playing with me, have you? All the time, like a cat and mouse. Knew all the time what I wanted you for, but kept up the comedy. Is that it? Is that it, eh?' He was cooling down. The red color was ebbing out of his face. He eyed her keenly. "'Who's been blabbing? Rita?' Tuppence shook her head. She was doubtful as to how long she could sustain this illusion, but she realized the importance of not dragging an unknown Rita into it. No, she replied with perfect truth. Rita knows nothing about me. His eyes still bored into her like gimlets. How much do you know? He shot out. Very little indeed, answered Tuppence, and was pleased to note that Whittington's uneasiness was augmented instead of allayed. To have boasted that she knew a lot might have raised doubts in his mind. Anyway, snarled Whittington, you knew enough to come in here and plump out that name. It might be my own name, Tuppence pointed out. It's likely, isn't it, that there would be two girls with a name like that? Or I might just have hit upon it by chance, intoxicated with the success of truthfulness. Mr. Whittington brought his fist down upon the desk with a bang. Quit fooling! "'How much do you know, and how much do you want?' "'The last five words took Tuppence's fancy mightily, 
"'especially after a meager breakfast "'and a supper of buns that night before. "'Her present part was of the adventurous "'rather than the adventurous order, "'but she did not deny its possibilities. "'She sat up and smiled "'with the air of one who has the situation "'thoroughly well in hand. "'My dear Mr. Whittington,' she said, "'let us by all means lay our cards upon the table, "'and pray do not be so angry. "'You heard me say yesterday "'that I propose to live by my wits.' "'It seems to me that I have now proved I have some wits to live by. "'I admit I have knowledge of a certain name, "'but perhaps my knowledge ends there.' "'Yes, and perhaps it doesn't,' snarled Whittington. "'You insist on misjudging me,' said Tuppence, and sighed gently. "'As I said once before,' said Whittington angrily, "'quit fooling, and come to the point. "'You can't play the innocent with me. "'You know a great deal more than you're willing to admit.' "'Tuppence paused a moment to admire her own ingenuity, "'and then said softly, "'I shouldn't like to contradict you, Mr. Whittington. "'So we've come to the usual question. "'How much?' "'Tuppence was in a dilemma. "'So far she had fooled Whittington with complete success, "'but to mention a palpably impossible sum "'might awaken his suspicions. "'An idea flashed across her brain. "'Suppose we say a little something down "'and a fuller discussion of the matter later.' Whittington gave her an ugly glance. "'Blackmail, eh?' Tuppence smiled sweetly. "'Oh, no. Shall we say payment of services in advance?' Whittington grunted. "'You see,' explained Tuppence, still sweetly, "'I'm so very fond of money.' "'You're about the limit, that's what you are,' growled Whittington, with a sort of unwilling admiration. "'You took me in all right. Thought you were quite a meek little kid with just enough brains for my purpose.' Life, moralized Tuppence, is full of surprises. All the same, continued Whittington, someone's been talking. You say it isn't Rita. Was it? A knock on the door was suddenly sounded. Uh, come in. The clerk followed his discreet knock into the room and laid a paper at his master's elbow. Telephone message just come for you, sir. Whittington snatched it up and read it. A frown gathered on his brow. "'That'll do, Brown. You can go.' The clerk withdrew, closing the door behind him. Whittington turned to Tuppence. "'Come tomorrow at the same time. I'm busy now. Here's fifty to go on with.' He rapidly sorted out some notes and pushed them across the table to Tuppence, then stood up, obviously impatient for her to go. The girl counted the notes in a businesslike manner, secured them in her handbag, and rose. "'Good morning, Mr. Whittington,' she said politely. "'At least—' "'Au revoir, I should say.' "'Exactly. Au revoir.' Whittington looked almost genial again, a reversion that aroused in Tuppets a faint misgiving. "'Au revoir, my clever and charming young lady.' Tuppence sped lightly down the stairs. A wild elation possessed her. A neighboring clock showed the time to be five minutes to twelve. "'Let's give Tommy a surprise,' murmured Tuppets, and hailed a taxi. The cab drew up outside the tube station. Tommy was just within the entrance. His eyes opened to their fullest extent as he hurried forward to assist Tuppence to alight. She smiled at him affectionately and remarked in a slightly affected voice, "'Pay the thing, will you, old bean? I've got nothing smaller than a five-pound note.'" We hope you enjoyed the first two chapters of The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie. Next week, chapters three and four. 
If you're enjoying our choice of stories here at 1001 Stories for the Road, please do send us a review. Reviews help new listeners find us. And also check 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales for our Agatha Christie stories there. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m., everyone. Take care, and we'll be back soon.